Uh, welcome to uh, I'm Driving Home from Opening Day edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast. The Mets got really just, I mean, I wouldn't say destroyed. They just, they played a game as if they didn't give a crap. And I know that's not the case in Major League Baseball. When your offense isn't going well, it appears as if you don't give a crap. But that's certainly the way they played as they got shut out by the immortal Steven Strasburg and the Washington Nationals 4 nothing. First of all, it was just so great to even be here. I mean, I can't tell you. The last couple of years with the Mets not being on our radio station has been a crime. All right? Now, they're not on our radio station now, but they're in the family. And many reasons why this thing sucked. From a personal standpoint, for the last five years, I think it was, I never got to see the first pitch of opening day. And that's selfish on my part, I admit. This is a selfish thing that I had, but it sucked every year. Every year before the Mets home opener or the true opening day, I would strategize for like five days how I was going to somehow get to City Field as fast as possible. Now, I started to realize by last year, what the hell's the difference? If I get there in the top of the second, the bottom of the second, the bottom of the first, I'm sprinting up the, uh, the stairs to get to my seat. What the hell's the difference? But it was still something that would cause me such angst for all of these years. And today was a little bit different. Obviously, 880 now has the New York Mets as compared to WOR, who deserved to lose the Mets after their radio broadcast last year of opening day, which I'll get into in about 30 seconds. So from a selfish perspective, I was very happy that we were able to broadcast the show from here. I didn't have to map out the quickest route possible to get here. I didn't have to sprint up the stairway to get to the seat. And for all that, miss the first, you know, inning and a half of the game, two innings of the game. We got to do the show from City Field, which was a lot of fun. And that made that experience, the opening day experience, at least for me, a little bit better. Now, I just realized that I should not ignore my GPS because... I basically told Google Maps to shut the hell up. I figured I, I would outsmart it by taking a different route. And I've just added nine minutes to my ETA because there is a lot of traffic. I live up in Westchester, and with the game ending at about 4.30, there couldn't be a worse time to go from Queens to Westchester than 4.30 afternoon during a work week. But whatever. It's a first world problem. The bigger problem is that the Met bats suck today. That would be the bigger problem. Or the bigger problem is that the fact the Brooklyn Nets are about to blow a playoff spot, but maybe I'll get into that later. Anyhow, last year, and this haunts me to this day, I get in the car after our radio show. I'm racing to opening day. I've got Howie and I've got Josh Lewin at the time on my radio. And then the two schmucks that did the morning show on WOR come on to promote themselves and hijack the broadcast. Now, Len Berman's one of them. It was not Len Berman's fault. He barely said anything. So I am sticking him into the barrel of the two schmucks. He really isn't a schmuck and he did nothing wrong. All right. So Len, if you're listening right now, peace and love, peace and love. It was the other moron. And I have no idea what his name is. I still don't know. But that haunted me for days. Here I am excited for opening day. I'm ready to listen. I'm already frustrated I can't be there for the first pitch. And I got to some here, here's some fake comedian dropping zingers, doesn't know about baseball, doesn't care about baseball. It sucked. So the fact I was able to avoid that was great. And I'm telling you, that broadcast itself, in its own right, warranted the Mets leaving WOR. Right there. That was the moment where if I'm the big decider 
of New York Mets radio rights, I would have said, get me the hell out of here. Don't ruin opening day. Now, as far as this game is concerned, the New York Mets ruined opening day. And before Mickey Calloway says it, because I know he's going to say it, he's going to pull an Aaron Boone, which is, let me make an excuse, and then proceed to say, I don't mean to make an excuse. That's what new age managers do incredibly well. You say, I'm not making an excuse, but, and then you make the actual excuse. So what Aaron Boone did after the Wednesday afternoon Yankee game is he referenced the shadows. Now, did he say we've got to be better? Of course he did. But he mentioned that shadows just to put it out there that, hey, wasn't all our fault. Well, I haven't heard Mickey's post game because I'm recording this right after the game is over. Game's been over for about 15 minutes now as I'm in my car. I know Mickey's going to blame sleep. Oh, the guys got in at 3 o'clock in the morning. They're really tired. That, that was it. And Steven Strasburg's really good. You know, you put those two, two things together, and you've got a game that featured no rallies. I mean, really, the only rally in this game was the two-out hit, and then, or actually the one-out hit, and then Ahmed Rosario getting on on an error when he hit that heartache ground ball to Anthony Rendon that I thought went off his jewels. I had no idea when it, what, it, what it went off of, but bottom line is he couldn't field it, and the Mets had two on and one out, and you knew with Juan Ligaris and Noah Syndergaard coming up, they really had no chance. That was their rally. That was the biggest threat they had in this game. And then later in the game, and I thought this one was tricky, Mickey Calloway, who I have made uh, no mistake about, I don't think he's a very good manager, had to decide as Strasburg was coming out of the game with two men on and two men out, he had to decide, do I leave Juan Ligueras in to potentially face Steven Strasburg? Do I send Dom Smith up as a pinch hitter knowing they will go to left-hander Matt Grace? And then I've got to decide, do I let Smith face Grace or do I pinch hit for Dom Smith with J.D. Davis? Now, you watch the game, you know what he did. He decided to go to Dom Smith, who's been off to a great start. You knew Davey Martinez was going to go to Matt Grace. Everybody knew it. He's warming up in the bullpen. And then it was back on Mickey Calloway to pinch hit for Dom Smith for J.D. Davis. Here's what I would have done. All right. To me, there's no way at that point Dave Martinez was keeping Stephen Strasburg in this game. His pitch count was about 108. He had just given up a couple of base hits, and the Mets had themselves a rally. He had his bullpen warming up. I, and I'm not ripping Mickey for this, the first part of it at least. I think I would have sent Juan Ligueras up there and almost dared Martinez to keep Strasburg in the game because I don't think he would have. And at that point, what does he do? I think he had a right-hander warming up. I'm trying to remember. I know for sure he obviously had Matt Grace warming up who came in the game. But almost dare Martinez to keep in a tired Steven Strasburg to face Juan Ligaris. Because the one thing we all know is if he takes Strasburg out, or not if he takes Strasburg out, if Mickey goes to Dom Smith, he's bringing the lefty in. That is a certainty. You are going right into the hands of Martinez by doing such. There is no way he's keeping Strasburg in the game. You know he's going lefty-lefty. So instead of giving Dave Martinez the easy victory, because either you are giving them the edge of Matt Grace versus Dom Smith lefty-lefty, or you're wasting Dom Smith and you're sending up J.D. Davis, who's hitting 180 so far, or whatever he's hitting, something in that neighborhood. You made it too easy for Dave Martinez. 
I would have loved to have seen, and I can't trust Mickey Calloway to do anything creative. I can't trust him to play the chess match of National League Baseball. I can't trust him to do that. But I would have played the chess match of sending Juan Ligueras back up there, not pinch hitting, and daring Martinez to make a move. And based on what he does, I decide if I pull Juan Ligueras back and send up Dom Smith. But essentially, Mickey Calloway wasted Dominic Smith. He never got to use him. Now, the other thing you could have done, and there's no way he was going to do this, trust me, I understand that, is to actually send up Luis Guillerme. Because you send up a left-hand hitter almost just as bait for Martinez to go lefty-lefty. Because, again, I don't think he's keeping Strasburg in the game. At that point, you pinch hit Guillerme for J.D. Davis, and away we go, and you keep Dom Smith for a potential later moment in the game. The one thing I don't like, and I think we could all agree on this, is wasting Dominic Smith. You know, to me right now, Dominic Smith, and I know it's a small sample size, has been too good to waste. And that's what he did. Dom never got an opportunity to come up in this game. Now, would it have made a difference? Probably not. Is Dom Smith hitting a three-run home run? Probably not. Is anybody doing anything in this game offensively? Probably not. But I don't like the idea of just throwing him away, of using him as somebody that's just going to get pinch hit for J.D. Davis. Now, I get, do I like Matt Grace versus Dom Smith as a matchup? No, I don't like that matchup. I agree. I understand. So what you've got to do is find a way to get creative to not waste Dom Smith. But the truth is, you look at this lineup today, it was lifeless. It was just lifeless. And, you know, one of the easy answers besides saying they couldn't get a lot of sleep is that Steven Strasburg is good. We like to make fun of Steven Strasburg. I used to make fun of him a lot before he ever pitched his first complete game. He did come up with a world of hype that was, you know, basically impossible for him to ever live up to. I'm trying to change lanes right now. We'll see if anybody lets me in. All right, this guy was very nice, and I appreciate that because there is bumper-to-bumper traffic. I don't even know where I am right now. I'm on streets uh, trying to get to the Whitestone Expressway. And, I again, I tried to outsmart this GPS because in my brain, I really thought that if I take the streets and kind of skip a little bit of the, the highway, I think a little bit of the Grand Central, I'd be able to skip a lot of this traffic, and it hasn't worked out that way. There's a lot of traffic on the side streets, and according to the GPS, I screwed myself out of like nine minutes. But whatever, it's not the end of the world. So Steven Strasburg was awesome, I admit it. He's striking a ton of guys out. He was very nasty. Obviously, he was mediocre in his first start against the Mets. So there are times where you got to tip your hat. I don't really want to tip my hat. But sure, I'll tip my hat to Strasburg. Syndergaard was okay. I mean, really what killed him were the walks. It killed him in that inning when he walked a couple of guys, he threw the wild pitch, and then he put himself in a spot where Wilmer Defoe could lay down a very nice bunt to get a run, and he obviously gives up the home run a little bit later to Victor Robles. But it was one of those days where the Met offense did nothing. And you'd like to see Robinson Cano wake up after that opening day home run and the opening day RBI double. He really hasn't done much offensively. And I've said this before, I don't mind giving him day-offs. I mean, Cano is old. Let's face it, you want to try to keep him fresh. I don't think he has to be like the guy he was in 07, 08, 09, 10, where the guy is playing every single day. One of the, the, the treats of Robinson Cano, one of the things I've always respected about him is that the guy goes out and plays every day. Until last year when he had the combination of the injury and the suspension. Guy goes out and plays every day. 
But at this age, with the Mets now having a long-term investment in Robinson Cano, I think you need to be smart about it. Plus, it gets more guys in the lineup. You know, it's a win-win situation that you can give them a day off, you can get Jeff McNeil over at second base, you can get more guys at-bats. Because right now, he looks like dog crap. It was not a good debut for Peter Alonso at City Field. It happens. Juan Laguerre sucks offensively. I think we already know that. And overall, it was just a dud. It was a dud of an opening day. I said to my dad, maybe it's a good sign. Maybe an opening day is usually such a success for the Mets, and obviously the rest of their season usually is not a success. So maybe they got, they're off to a good start. They are 5-2. and two. Maybe it is a positive sign that they had such a lifeless first home game of the season as they lose to the Washington Nationals. And, and I got to admit, and I don't know who has decided to download this edition of the podcast. I have no idea. So I accept that a good part of you may decide to click off this podcast right now with what I'm about to get into. I accept that. There's no way for me to really know when you say I've had enough of this podcast. I'm done. I'm bored. Evan, shut the hell up. And it's fine. I really don't care. The beauty of the podcast, there are no radio ratings. There's nothing to worry about. I can do whatever the hell I want. So what I'm about to get to is this freaking Brooklyn net debacle. And here's where I'm mixed. When you lose to the Milwaukee Bucks, in my opinion, the best team in the Eastern Conference, is it really a debacle? No, it's not. When you lose to the Toronto Raptors, the second best team in the Eastern Conference, is it really a debacle? No, it's not. I understand that. But the thing that would be a debacle is if somehow Wednesday night, the Brooklyn Nets are not in the playoffs. This team has been in a playoff spot for two months. This team has been above 500 for two months. That, of course, changed after the Raptor game. And we all knew this schedule was going to be difficult. But there have been two things that have surprised, really three things that have surprised me that's led to this moment in time with three games to go in the season and the fear of the basketball gods in my heart that this team's not going to make the playoffs. And here are the three things. Number one, I did not think the bar would be raised on the amount of wins it would take to make the postseason. Now, I'm not trying to make the Eastern Conference sound as if it's the Western Conference from a few years ago where you had a 48-win team not make the playoffs. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is in my brain, based on logic, based on the way teams were playing, I thought the 39 wins that the Brooklyn Nets are at right now, I thought that would have been enough. I thought that that win total would have been enough to make the postseason in the Eastern Conference in 2019. What has changed? The Orlando Magic have changed. The Miami Heat hovering around 500 has changed. Not the Pistons as much, but certainly the Magic and the way they've played. So number one, in knowing the West Coast trip, in knowing the teams they were playing upon arriving home, it's not like I was oblivious. We've talked about this many times, how brutal this schedule was. But what changed was the bar had been raised. The bar has risen because of the Orlando Magic and partially the Miami Heat, but mostly the Magic. That's number one. Number two, in my brain, knowing who they were facing, I figured since Kawhi freaking Leonard has been taking maintenance days all season long, 
I figured the Nets would get fortunate that Kawhi would be maintenancing all over the place to close this season. And so I didn't expect the Toronto Raptors and even to a degree the Milwaukee Bucks to be playing their elite players. You know, on Giannis Antetokounmpo with a with a banged up ankle, I necessarily didn't think would play Monday night. Now, am I complaining? I'm not complaining. I understand how good the Bucks are. The Bucks are the best team in the East. I thought they were going to be the best team in the East before this season started. The biggest regret I have is I didn't make that bet when they were 40 to 1 to win the Eastern Conference. So I know how good the Bucks are. It's just that the thought was to close the season, hey, you'll get some breaks. You're going to face these really good teams who are not going to go all out to win these games. That has not been the case. The Bucks and the Raptors both played hard. I don't know what the Bucks are going to do on Saturday. Hey, I fully expect everybody's going to play. And I fully expect that the Nets right now are not capable of winning that game in Milwaukee. The Bucs are better. The Bucs are the worst matchup the Nets could have in the Eastern Conference playoffs. So I think the teams they were playing being elite and better than Brooklyn is not a surprise. But maybe in my mind, my stupid, shriveled up, dumb mind, I thought, hey, you know what? They're going to get a little bit of a break down the stretch of the year. And they still may, but I doubt it. They're going to play the Bucks on Saturday. They'll play everybody. And then they have to play a back-to-back in Indiana against the Pacers, who've done a great job helping the Nets out the last couple of days. But they're battling for home court advantage. They should lose both of those games. The Indiana game feels more winnable from the aspect that the Pacers are not as good as Milwaukee. We know how they've played without Victor Oladipo, and the answer is they played well. Thaddeus Young has had a great year. Boyan Bogdanovich, the former Nets, has had a great year. Sabonis has blossomed into a really good player. The Pacers are a good team. No question about it. That is a tough matchup. The third thing, and I don't know if this is a surprise, but I think a lot of us believed that upon getting healthy, upon Karis LeVert returning, upon Spencer Dinwiddie coming back, because the Nets played their best basketball without Karis LeVert, They missed Dinwiddie for an extended period of time. That, hey, once they're healthy, we are going to see the Nets at their best. And that has just not been the case. They have not been their best. They have not played their best basketball. They've had some inspirational wins, certainly the game in Sacramento, the game against the Lakers they had to have, taking care of business against the Celtics, who did sit Kyrie Irving and Al Horford. They've won games. They have not played their best basketball. And I think in a way that's surprising that their best basketball really came not just during the seven-game winning streak where they responded to 8-18, and but even the run after that, that eventually propelled them to four games above 500. That was their best basketball. That's where they were clicking for an extended period of time, and they didn't do it as a fully healthy team. Now they're a fully healthy team, and at least my hope was we would see the best of the Brooklyn Nets. We have not seen the best of the Brooklyn Nets. We have not, for the most part, seen the best of Jared Allen. We've seen Karis LeVert, you know, really struggle upon getting back to where he was pre-injury. We have seen a zone defense that at times has been exposed by the league who's gotten used to the fact the Nets play a zone defense. We saw them completely destroyed on the offensive glass against the Toronto Raptors. We have seen free throw shooting go backwards and cost them games, specific games it has cost them. 
We have seen them play dumb basketball. I figured in the game against Toronto, they made a bunch of mistakes between Spencer Dinwiddie trying to lob it backwards to Karis LeVert to some of the ill-advised three-point attempts that they took. They have gone backwards. Now, during some commercial breaks, and by commercial breaks, not really because I'm at the game, but during some lulls in the action, if you will, pitching changes between half innings, I got distracted. And I distracted myself by just staring at the Indiana, uh, not the Indiana Pacers, the Orlando Magic schedule, the Detroit Pistons schedule, the Miami Heat schedule. And so the road for those teams features some speed bumps. And so maybe over the final three and four games of the season, despite the fact that the Nets have to play two games on the road that they're probably not winning before a make-or-break game in Brooklyn against the Heat, they should, and the key word is should, get a little bit of help over the next couple of days. At least hopefully they do. And I think it's going to set up Wednesday night as a win-and-get-in situation against Miami. And I would not be surprised if they're in a spot on Wednesday where they could win and potentially be the sixth seed and matched up against Philadelphia and lose and potentially miss the playoffs. And I'm sorry, if they miss the playoffs, it's a freaking disaster. So while I was disappointed in this Met loss, my mind is still on the final three games and the help they may need for the Brooklyn Nets. Friday night, no Mets, no Yankees. It's not about Brooklyn. They're not playing. It's all about the Detroit Pistons, who are going to be playing a very tough game, the Miami Heat, and the Orlando Magic. The Orlando Magic are playing the Atlanta Hawks at home. I believe in the talent of John Collins and Trey Young. The Detroit Pistons are in Oklahoma City against my man Russell Westbrook and himself. Russell Westbrook himself and the great Paul George. And Miami is in Minnesota against the Timberwolves. Friday night becomes much must watch. Anyhow, this has been the I'm Driving Home from Opening Day while waxing poetic about the Nets edition of the Evan Roberts podcast.